0: A pandemic of confusion. The lead starts right now. Backlash growing as the CDC updates its isolation guidance, causing only more bewilderment. Again, why this makes it so much harder for schools and businesses to reopen. And on the eve of the insurrection anniversary, the January 6th House Committee turns its focus to Trump's former press secretary as it waits to hear from former vice president Mike Pence, a member of that House Select Committee will tell us more. Plus, no love in Australia for one of tennis's biggest stars. A look at why the unvaxxed tennis superstar may not be welcome down under. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We start today in the health lead. Americans are left scratching their heads once again after the CDC attempted to clarify its new isolation guidance. Again. A week ago, the agency changed the isolation period for asymptomatic COVID positive individuals, reducing it from 10 days to five, plus five days of wearing a mask. Many in the medical community were at that point shocked that the CDC did not recommend a negative COVID test as a condition to re enter the world. <clears throat> so the CDC went back, revised its guidance, and now the CDC says take a test if you want to, which is not really a recommendation or guidance, and only further muddies the waters. Now, to be fair, part of the problem with this latest confusing guidance by the CDC is that there are currently not enough tests out there, even though President Biden and his now chief of staff, Ron Klain, spent much of the 2020 campaign talking about Trump's failures to get testing to where it needed to be, specifically for Trump not invoking the Defense Production Act to force the manufacture of tests and for Trump being hostile to the very concept of testing because testing revealed the number of cases. In the summer of 2020, Ron Klain described the Biden plan for tackling COVID as this. The Biden
1: plan starts with fixing Trump's testing fiasco. He'd make sure that all Americans have access to regular, reliable, and free testing.
0: All Americans, regular, reliable, free testing. It's now 2022, and while Biden has invoked the Defense Production Act, and testing is at 10 million a day as opposed to the 2020 number of under a million a day, it's also true that Biden has fallen short of making sure, as Klein put it back then, that all Americans have access to regular, reliable, and free testing. That's not where we are, not to the level that's needed. And now, as CNN's Alexandra Field reports, local governments and school boards and parents are left to decide what they think is best
2: for their own communities. Individuals are considered fully vaccinated against COVID-19 if they've received their primary series. That definition is not changing.
3: No plans to change the definition of fully vaccinated, the White House says, even as there's new evidence of the efficacy of boosters, lowering the chance of death by an additional 90 percent, according to data shared by the CDC, even as eligible people are encouraged to get boosted. If you're vaccinated and boosted, you are highly protected. CDC advisors weigh today whether to recommend boosters for 12 to 15-year-olds. And on the question of how long infected people need to isolate, more confusion today. I wish the CDC would just come out and say, hey, we don't have enough tests. We really should have enough tests and then you can test your way out of isolation. Instead, the CDC issuing updated guidance suggesting that people in isolation who have access to a test could test after five days. If positive, then isolate for five more days. But the CDC says if you don't test after five days of isolation, then just wear a mask for five more days.
1: So if there were an abundant, and overly abundant supply of rapid tests, I think we'd be approaching this differently.
3: Amid a critical shortage of tests, new federal test sites are set to open in six states. The half-billion free at-home kits promised by the Biden administration delayed as new COVID cases now average over a half million daily, and they're climbing fast. 95% are estimated by the CDC to be Omicron, up to three times more contagious than Delta. And hospitalizations are surpassing the Delta peak last September and approaching an all-time high set last January.
4: The sheer volume of the number
5: of cases that may be a reduced severity but could still stress our hospital system
3: ohio maryland delaware and georgia now among the latest states to call up their national guards to help in hospitals so jake the white house is saying that this order of a half billion free tests that they're going to send to americans they say that order won't affect the supply of the home kits that are in stores now if you can actually find a kit in a store the price of it could soon be going up that's because certain retailers like Walmart and Kroger's had deals with the White House to sell those kits at cost. Those deals have now expired. Jake.
0: Please. Alexander Field, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, it's difficult to give clear health guidance to the public when the science t- keeps changing, and we, we need to acknowledge that. But that is not always the problem here. The CDC, in this case, is basically saying you don't need to test again after testing positive but they're saying it in a very convoluted way. Be straight with our viewers. What do Americans really need to be thinking about if they test positive, but they're relatively, they're asymptomatic or have mild symptoms?
6: Well, first of all, I think you gotta make a distinction between vaccinated and unvaccinated. I mean, if you're vaccinated, you test positive, uh, you feel pretty good about your protection against developing severe disease. And I think that's that's really important. At the same time, we know that uh, if you are vaccinated, you are less likely to become infected but you can still become infected, you can still be contagious. And I think that's what's driving a lot of these guidelines that Alexander was just mentioning, You know, staying home for at least five days, uh, seeing if your symptoms revolve, you you, you no longer have a fever, things like that. And then as you've mentioned, and I completely agree with, we've been talking about this for two years, what's driving the bottom half of these recommendations uh, about testing is that we don't have enough testing which is why the testing is now made optional, and frankly, minimized. I mean, nothing changes if you have a a negative test there, right? You're still in isolation for five days. I think what's important to remember as well, Jake, is that where did the five day sort of thing come from? I think if you conceptualize this, you sort of say, okay, day zero to day 10, what's the likelihood of contagiousness at any given time? What you find is at day five, right in the middle there, uh, you're still, about 31% of people are still going to be contagious. So, that, that, you know, about a third of people, Jake, still contagious at that point. If they're not being tested uh, and they, you know, still feel like they are, you know, able to get out of isolation, that could be a problem that continues to accelerate the pandemic. And I will also say one more thing, Jake, you know, masks, cloth masks are still uh, recommended by the CDC. With Omicron, it is really a different, different game. And I think you, if you're going to wear a mask, and you should, you should wear a proper mask, a high filtration mask, N95 or KN95, because that's going to give you your best chance at not continuing to propagate the virus.
0: Yeah, I have one of these. It's a KN95, uh, and uh, my kid's school just recommended either double masking or KN- KN95 or N95 masks just because they're better. Uh, and it's odd that the CDC hasn't made that clear mm. Um, There are several examples with weather masks or boosters where the CDC has has made things more confusing uh, than necessary. Um, Do you worry that the more the CDC tweaks its guidance, the more they're losing the trust of the American people? I mean, I see people online. I mean, hashtags have whatever value they have, but people it's a meme. You know, the CDC recommends such and such and they make they make fun of the CDC. And these are not just, you know, vaccine skeptics making fun of them. It's basically, you know, all of Twitter.
6: Yeah, you know, it's, it's um, I, I do worry about this erosion of trust. I will say I've been doing this long enough where like I remember back in 2015, uh, you know, during Ebola, uh, you know, trust in governmental health agencies at that point was around 30%, 31%. So it's not unusual in the middle of a health catastrophe for there to be this erosion of trust. I think the biggest issue though is just the, the, the transparency. There's not enough tests. You just showed that clip saying that, you know, we were going to have enough tests. We were promised at least a half a billion tests. By this point, there's not enough tests. And it's because of the lack of tests that we're getting this convoluted guidance. Uh, that's, it's bad, but I think they should just be honest about the fact that there's not enough tests instead of saying the tests really don't have value. You don't really need it. Take it if you want it. I think that's ultimately what leads to the, to the erosion of trust more than anything else. I think it's, it's still salvageable. And you know, I, and I and I am optimistic that you know we are going to all get through this together. But I think there was many, many opportunities to be very transparent about it, where, where those opportunities were missed.
0: Yeah, and, and look, to be clear, as I noted, Biden has gotten testing to a better place than it was when he and Ron Klein in 2020 were, were criticizing Trump for it. But we are not at the point as Klain promised about the Biden plan that all Americans have access to regular, reliable, and free testing. We're not there, period.
6: No, we're, we're not. And I don't think that we, it's even been explained that well, the value of testing. Instead, again, it's been minimized. But the idea, Jake, you know, people talk about the PCR test, the gold standard test, very sensitive, will find presence of the virus. That's a good test. Problem is that let's say you're totally you know, past your illness, no longer contagious, you could still continue to test positive on the PCR test. The antigen tests, and I think this is an important point, but the rapid antigen tests that we talk about, in many ways they're answering the question people are really asking which is, am I contagious? That's what these tests are really designed to do. And if we had enough of them, and I'm gonna exaggerate a little bit here, Jake, but you could imagine yourself testing every day or every, every couple of days, at least in your own home, and knowing, like you check the weather report, am I contagious today? Can I go out and be around people, or should I stay at home? That, that it sounds crazy, fantastical even, but that was sort of the plan at one point, that we would have 30, 40 million of these tests a day available for people, and we just have never gotten there.
0: Yeah, and, and you say the lack of testing is the original sin, um, but this is a situation we find ourselves in two years into this pandemic. One doctor told CNN, mm-hmm. young vaccinated healthy people should not use up tests when more vulnerable people should use them. Take a listen.
7: Given that scenario
8: of relatively healthy young people who are almost entirely vaccinated. It's not the most effective use of testing. You could be helping those out in the community. I mean, nursing homes still struggle with testing. High risk people who live at home, you know, who may want people around them tested, have struggled.
0: I mean, this is a bunch of people trying, a bunch of health officials trying to make the best of the situation while also not saying, as, as you note, the problem is that there has been a failure when it comes to testing. We're not where we need to be when it comes to the
1: supply.
6: Yeah. I mean, what he's describing is triage that is necessary because we have a paucity of these resources. If we had enough testing, we wouldn't be having to make those decisions. You're right. He's right, I think, you know, in, in the sense that if you don't have enough tests, you do want to prioritize the people who are going to benefit the most from it. People who are vulnerable, people who may be uh, qualifying for therapeutics, they need to know whether or not they have the virus. But in the meantime, we've got to make sure we ramp up enough testing and that they arrive at a time when they're most useful these tests show up in the summer, you know, the numbers are going to be a lot lower at that point. We need them now.
0: Yeah. It's incredible that we're still here and and still dealing with this. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, your new essay about the CDC guidance is going to be out tonight on CNN.com. Can't wait to see it. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. The evidence does not lie. A deeper look at just how damaging the pandemic has been on kids' mental health. Plus, one year ago tonight, a suspect planted bombs near the Capitol. And yet we still have no idea who that person was. Is the FBI any closer to making any arrests? Stay with us. We're back with our politics lead. Moments ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland reassured the public that on the eve of the Capitol attack anniversary, the actions the Justice Department has taken so far in response to the insurrection will not be its last.
9: The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy.
0: CNN's Evan Perez is live for us at the Justice Department. Evan Garland's speech comes as he's facing increasing pressure from the left to prosecute more people involved. In the events uh, leading up to the attack,
10: yeah, Jake, and I think what you, what you heard there from an attorney, from the attorney general, was uh, you know essentially an acknowledgement of that he's hearing the criticism, that he knows that there's impatience with the pace of, of of how this investigation is going, and and frankly, the lack of communication we've had from people in this building about what's the overall strategy, uh, especially when it comes to perhaps going after the bigger fish. Look, what you're not going to hear from him is any discussion of whether uh, the former president, uh, Trump, and his, his associates uh, were, are going to be held accountable for inciting what happened on January 6th. He's just not going to go there. But what you heard from him is that they're going to follow uh, the facts and see what they can find and prosecute anyone that they can, that they can uh, bring prosecutions against.
0: And Evan, you spoke to one of the FBI officials in charge of the investigation uh, into the insurrection, what did he have to say?
10: Well, Jake, you know one of the unusual things about this, about the the crime of from, that happened on January six, was that almost nobody was arrested, and so it's taken a huge herculean herculean effort to arrest those people. And for the FBI, one of the the big Factors, uh, one of the big items is still uh, the person who left bombs at the dnc and rnc which is near the u.s capitol i sat down with steven, steven d'antuono who run, who's running the investigation for the fbi washington field office and he talked about uh, you know 250 people that they're still looking for for assaults against police officers take a listen one of the focuses for the fbi has been on the assaults of the police officers that day? Is there a special group of agents focused on that? Over 100 police officers were assaulted that day,
1: multiple times, not just once. i we're just talking about one assault, multiple assaults, and by multiple people. We're still looking for about 250 people, individuals that assault a police officer that day. How long do you think this will take? I'd be speculating, yeah. but it's taken a year. Um, we still have a lot to still do. Um, like I said, there's still a lot of video out there, a lot of people to identify. And we're going to be at this as long as it takes it's until we uh, bring the people to justice.
10: And, Jake, we have about 725 people who are already arrest- facing charges. Uh, we're looking at well over a thousand by the time this is all over.
0: Evan Perez, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, Donald Trump's former press secretary, Stephanie Grisham, is about to meet with the January 6th committee. We'll ask a committee member what they want to learn from her. That's next. In our politics lead, in the next couple hours, the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack will meet with one of the longest serving members of the Trump administration. Stephanie Grisham served as White House press secretary and communications director and as chief of staff for then First Lady Melania Trump. Grisham was the first Trump administration official to resign as a response to the insurrection. This is what she told me in October about the former president's thinking on January 6th.
4: I know he was well aware that there was going to be a very large gathering, you know, a Stop the Steal gathering that he was going to be speaking at. I know that his campaign was working directly with some of the people, some of the vendors who were kind of organizing the campaign. I believe that when he went up there and made those strong statements of we must be strong, we must go fight, let's walk down to the Capitol, I believe he knew what he was saying. And I believe he, again, like I said at the beginning, he knows what people are willing to do for him.
0: Here to discuss, Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar of California He's on the House Select Committee investigating the Capitol attack. Congressman, what questions uh, are you going to have for Stephanie Grisham?
11: Well, thanks for having me, Jake. Happy New Year. Uh, I think that it's important to note, um, I can't talk about any specifics uh, of, of the interviews that we're going to be having uh, in the coming days and weeks, uh, but what I can tell you is this is someone who is in clearly in the president's orbit and very close, to he, uh, very close to him and the First Lady and someone who has knowledge about what the president might have been thinking on January 5th and January 6th. Those are important aspects of our investigation and things that we want to get to the bottom of.
0: Your committee chairman, Benny Thompson, says that your committee wants to also hear directly from former Vice President Mike Pence. He was in the Capitol with you all that day, not at the White House, so what kind of information do you want from him?
11: Well, what we've said all along is understanding the pressure campaign that was being put um, by folks in the White House. Uh, to other states, um, and to uh, potentially the vice president. Those types of aspects are important uh, to our work. Um, We need to have more clarity uh, specifically on what was happening uh, those 187 minutes on January 6th. Um, But the time from the election until January 5th and January 6th, that's an important timeline as well. And understanding the pressure campaign that the White House was undertaking is important, and we feel uh, that uh, there are many individuals who could have information that are helpful to our investigation in that regard. Can you tell us
0: if the former vice president, Mike Pence, plans to voluntarily cooperate with the committee?
11: Uh, We're interested in hearing from a lot of individuals, uh, so I can't get into specifics, um, but we are talking to uh, a number of individuals um, and hope that many more come forward. Um, Our our task, our charge in front of us is to find out everything we can on what happened January 6th, uh, the lead-up to that. Uh, That's exactly what we plan to do, and Chairman Thompson and, and Vice Chair Cheney have been leading those discussions.
0: We heard Attorney General Merrick Garland this afternoon pledging to bring every single person involved with the Capitol right to justice. Uh, Your fellow Democratic Congressman Ruben Gallego of Arizona, on the other hand, has had some very harsh words about Garland on CNN uh, yesterday.
12: Take a listen. I think Merrick Garland has been extremely weak, uh, and I think there should be a lot more of the organizers of January 6th uh, that should be arrested by now.
0: Do you agree? Do you think Attorney General Garland uh, has been weak?
11: What I hear from my colleagues is that we need to ensure that there's accountability uh, at all levels. And the Department of Justice has a role to play there. And so clearly, uh, that's what we're interested in, is making sure that we're accountable. We're holding individuals accountable um, for what happened. And Congress, we have our role here through the Select Committee. Uh, We're going to be finding out what exactly happened, um, uh, what transpired, but the Department of Justice also needs to to have a layer of accountability. Uh, That's what uh, I hear from my colleagues, and that's what we expect out of uh, an impartial Department of Justice.
0: Yeah, but do you think he's been weak? Garland.
11: Uh, I think what we want to see out of them is uh, to hold people accountable. But sometimes this takes time. Uh, We see that uh, from our perspective within the committee. And so uh, we're going to be patient and allow the Department of Justice to do what they need to do. Uh, But at the end of the day, we want to make sure that they are committed to accountability, just like we are here in Congress.
0: The Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas, said his department's operating at a heightened level of threat uh, because of the anniversary of the insurrection tomorrow. But They're not aware of any credible threats specifically related to the anniversary tomorrow. Are you at all concerned uh, about potential violence tomorrow?
11: I'm not, I haven't seen anything that would, that would give me that pause um, from a security posture. Um, but uh, that might be a better question for, uh, for other members. Um, but uh, my feeling here is that we're going to uh, uh, have a solemn moment uh, here and to make sure that we mark the anniversary of January 6th. Uh, we do so in a way that is, uh, that is true uh, to, to, to what happened um, and also reflective and uh, that we honor those Capitol Police officers and individuals uh, who were those last line of defense for democracy that we had here that day. Um, so those are the important aspects uh, tomorrow, but I don't, I don't feel any safety issues associated with tomorrow specifically.
0: There is a provision in the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, um, that says anybody who has participated in an insurrection against the Constitution uh, needs to be barred from holding office, whether House or Senate or the presidency. Is that one of the ways the committee is exploring accountability? In other words, maybe the committee is not able to find that President Trump or any of the congressmen or senators who also fomented the insurrection or incited it, uh, maybe they didn't break any laws, but they did violate the Constitution. And therefore, the committee might recommend action along those lines, barring individuals from running for office or holding office, if, if the committee concludes that they did commit an insurrection against the Constitution.
11: I'm not going to presuppose what, what a final report uh, could say. We're still in that investigative stage right now. We're still gathering a lot of information. Um, but I think it, it's clear uh, from the impeachment proceedings, you know, the twice impeached uh, former president, um, that uh, that was something that, uh, that many of us felt is prohibiting him from from serving in the future uh, was something that, uh, that, that was a worthy discussion. Um, but I'm not going to get into the investigative measures or what a final report could say that we produce.
0: Democratic Congressman Pete Aguilar, thank you so much. Appreciate it as always. Thanks, Jake. Tomorrow, join us for special coverage live inside the Capitol with police, lawmakers and political leaders. I'm going to be joined by my colleague Anderson Cooper for January 6th, one year later. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Middle school is hard enough without a global pandemic. The real world impact of the pandemic on kids' mental health. Stay with us. And our healthy public school students in Chicago are back to at-home learning after the teachers' union in that city voted to remote restart the school year because of COVID concerns, even though health experts have been saying literally for years now that schools should be the very last thing to close. And as long as precautions are taken, schools can be safe places for kids. Children who, of course, have suffered greatly in terms of emotionally and academically and psychologically since the pandemic came to the U.S. in March 2020. As CNN's Elizabeth Cohen reports, kids who are in person are struggling with the whiplash of packed hallways and social interaction and new rules.
2: Like other families, the Kitleys in Chicago were thrilled when last fall their four children could finally go back to school. But halfway through the school year, there have been bumps in the road, leaving home, going back to school. That transition back to school has been
13: difficult, mostly for my youngest child, who felt this sense of safety and security from the age of seven until eight and a half and then
2: needing to go back to school. So it sounds like your daughter got used to having the comfort of having mom and dad around all the time. Absolutely, and then is expected
13: to just go back to school from zero to 100. There wasn't a a gradual transition.
2: Kidley, a therapist herself, sees the tension
13: in her patients. They are feeling increased anxiety around just how to be and communicate with people and build friendships and being able to feel comfortable in their environment.
2: Have you seen children hit... Crisis points. Low self esteem
13: and low confidence, and um, feeling depressed, and as a coping mechanism, turning to eating disorder behavior or cutting behavior, and really not being able to manage the intensity of being
2: back in a school environment. Last month, the U.S. Surgeon General issued this 53 page advisory outlining how the pandemic has had an unprecedented negative impact on the mental health of children. One global study finding symptoms of youth depression and anxiety doubled.
5: I'm so concerned about our children because there is uh, an epidemic, if you will, uh, of mental health challenges that they've been facing. Kitley
2: says an empowerment group for girls that she started has helped. See you later. Atlanta area counselor Tisha Stovall-Dula says when children feel overwhelmed by the transition back to school, she offers them a safe place.
14: They'll often come to my office just to get a break from the noise. And I was very surprised by that, that they needed to come and get a break from the noise.
2: Her advice to parents, remember that if your children seem immature for their age, there's a reason. They missed out on more than a year of development with their
14: peers. I mean, my 12-year-old They still act so young, they're more like elementary school kids.
2: Missing a year to a year and a half of social interaction for a middle school student, that's a lot. It was a lot. And be patient with your child as they transition from one way of life to another.
14: Their world was turned upside down. As adults, we are able to um, bounce back quicker, usually faster, but for them, you know, it's going to take a little more time.
2: And now as children head back to school after the holidays, another factor adding to the anxiety, Omicron, older children understand how very transmissible it is. So again, counselors urging patience and conversations with your children about COVID-19. Jake?
0: Elizabeth Cohen, thanks so much. Let's bring in Dr. Dimitri Christakis. He's a pediatrician and the director of the Center for Child Health Behavior and Development at Seattle Children's Hospital. Uh, Dr. Christakis, a a kid who's in seventh grade has not has not had a steady, predictable education since fourth grade. Uh, Those are such incredibly formative years. How concerned are you that thousands of schools have decided to delay or go remote for the first part of this year?
12: I'm very concerned, you know, Jake, let me start by saying it's really good to be back, but I wish I were back here to talk about something else. You know, um, we keep facing this same dilemma about uh, whether or not children should go to school. And we know enough now to know that they can go to school safely, that schools are not a primary source of contagion, particularly when mitigation strategies are followed. And we also know that keeping them out of school have been immensely damaging to their mental health, to their cognitive development. And these years are lost. They're not easily recoverable. And to me, to see that we have sports arenas going on when they can field teams with tens of thousands of fans, bars and restaurants open, to hear mayors and governors and even the president say we're not going to be shutting down because of Omicron, but schools are shutting down. Shutting down schools is effectively shutting down society for children. That is their life. So we shouldn't Talk about not shutting down if we're shutting down schools. And schools, as I've said before, should be the last thing to close and the first thing to open. So, Dr.
0: Christakis, let's say that I am a teacher, I have some comorbidities, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm you know, 55, 65 years old. Um, tell me why I'm safe in a school.
12: Yeah, I'll tell you why. Um, because we know uh, that if... I would say vaccinated, we say we now say vaccinated and boosted. I think we should think of three vaccines as being quote unquote vaccinated. In pediatri- as a pediatrician, we know that we often give three, four, five doses before we consider someone fully vaccinated. But as an adult, even with some comorbidities, if you're fully vaccinated and you practice mitigation strategies, which adults are perfectly capable of doing, an adult teacher can mask, she or he can maintain social distance, they can use hand hygiene. Um, and, and they can work perfectly safely. Uh, we do it in the healthcare arena all the time. But let me take it a step further. If in fact the Chicago teachers are refusing to go back, the students should still be allowed to go back. The teachers can zoom into the classroom. It's that important from my perspective that children be allowed to interact with each other in a real space. So clearly my preference would be that teachers are present in the classroom. but. A second choice would be that teachers be virtually present in the classroom and students be authentically present.
0: So despite the benefits of kids being in person, um, there are parents uh, that are worried about the safety of their kid at school, especially given how rapidly uh, the Omicron variant spreads. What What do you tell a parent who's concerned?
12: Yeah, so, you know, the good news is that children over the age of five can all be vaccinated now, get at least two doses and some can get three. And that those vaccines, from what we know, do provide significant protection against uh, Omicron, which is what we're seeing right now. And that in spite of the fact that there are a lot of reports that a lot more children are sick with Omicron, it's likely reflects the fact that a lot, a, lot, a lot more children are very sick, it likely reflects the fact that many more children are getting it. It's incredibly contagious. And so if 10 times more children get it, there'll be 10 times more children who are very sick from it. But the truth is, the risk of children getting very, very sick from Omicron remain vanishingly low. It's not, in my opinion, a reason to keep children out of school, particularly given that we know they can be safe there. Most of the transmissions that are happening are happening outside of schools.
0: Yeah, I was really happy. amongst children. I was really happy to see uh, uh, the the head of my kids' school just sent out an email just a few minutes ago uh, saying that they wanted to um, demand a, a higher quality mask for kids. Uh, so, so yes. now they're being told to wear a, a KN95 like the one I'm holding right here, uh, or something like that. That cloth masks are not good enough. Uh, do you think that schools should be doing that too?
12: I, I I agree. I think that cloth masks for all people, including children, should be kind of a thing of the past, and we should be using uh, surgical masks or KN95s, surgical masks at a minimum. And if people like the vanity effect of wearing a cloth mask, they can wear it over their surgical mask. Wearing a KN95 all day, quite frankly, for children can be a bit of a challenge. It clearly proffers more protection, but uh, I think a surgical mask should be the minimum. I, I want to say one more thing, by the way, about this issue of mental health in children, because we also are probably going start to start to see sort of, if you will, um, D type effect, right? I mean, these are children who are just starting to get back into school and all of a sudden are being told, oh, no, you're, you're not going back. You're going back to where you were two years ago. And that can lead to a, a, a real sense of hopelessness. I mean, what is where, where, what do they foresee as the end? The truth is we have a long way to go before COVID is, is an endemic disease that we just treat like, like influenza. And there are a lot of letters left in the Greek alphabet before we get there. And if the, if the strategy is always going to be with each new variant, we need to shut down schools. We're going to be doing it for yeah. many years to come.
0: Dr. Christakis, uh, always good to have you on. Thank you so much. We've got some breaking news. Australia is telling one of the world's top tennis players who is not vaccinated he's not welcome. Stay with us. And we have some breaking news for you in our sports lead now. Just moments ago, the Australian government announced that tennis superstar Novak Djokovic will not be allowed to enter that country amid growing backlash over a vaccine exemption that had been given to Djokovic, who is not vaccinated. The decision to grant the exemption prompted widespread anger and skepticism in Australia, where residents have endured months of strict COVID lockdown. CNN's Phil Black joins us now live. Phil, it's not the the vaccine exemption, we should note, that is keeping Djokovic from entering the country. Tell us more about what you're learning about this decision.
15: Yeah, that's right, Jake. So Novak Djokovic had long played it pretty coy on the subject of his vaccination status, although he's spoken out against the idea of vaccines. And so there was a real point of speculation about whether he would, in fact, travel to Australia to play at Melbourne in the Australian Open. We recently heard the news that he'd been granted an exemption to play in the tournament by tournament organisers as an unvaccinated player. We were told that that is a fair, blind process. Two independent panels of experts assessed his medical application. They didn't know whose application they were assessing, crucially, and that's why he got that exemption. But it seems he, his team messed up the separate and very important paperwork that allows him to enter the country as an unvaccinated person. And so that is why he was effectively stopped at the border when he flew in. It's why we understand he was held in a room while his case was assessed. And the result of of, of that review is that the Australian authorities have determined that he has failed to provide the appropriate evidence that should allow him to enter the country at this time under the existing Uh, COVID rules. So what does that mean? Well, it means his visa has been cancelled. It is unclear what avenues of appeal he has, whether or not he can challenge this decision in any way. But it is possible that the world number one tennis player could be put on a plane in the coming hours, perhaps sooner, and sent home. It is an undignified uh, way uh, for this to, uh, to be resolved. Uh, Jake. And we no doubt he won't be happy about it. His father has spoken out saying that he was essentially held captive while all of this uh, played out uh, today.
0: Jake. All right, Phil Black, thanks so much. Almost one year ago, thousands of MAGA terrorists attacked the Capitol. We're going to talk to the head of the Department of Homeland Security about the concerns ahead of the anniversary of that horrible day. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, classes canceled, at least for today. The Chicago Teachers Union's decision to go remote could have a devastating effect on many Windy City families and children. We're going to talk to a parent worried about the impact on her 7th grade daughter. Plus, a horrific fire in Philadelphia killing 13 people, including 7 children, all inside city-owned public housing with smoke detectors that were not working. We're going to go live with how this all happened. And leading this hour... State of the Cases. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland outlining today the latest on the Justice Department's investigation into what happened on January 6th, just one day before the anniversary of the attack. More than 725 people have been arrested, charged, or convicted already, but more than 350 rioters remain on the loose. As CNN's Ryan Nobles reports for us now, the Attorney General is promising to hold every January 6th rioter accountable no matter what it takes.
8: (laughs) On the eve of the one-year anniversary of the deadly January 6th insurrection, the Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger delivered a stark reality about the threats that still exist for members of Congress.
5: It's gone
1: up every year. Last year was 8,600. This year was 9,600. So the
8: workload is increasing. Manger and his force are still addressing problems exposed by the riot, but say they are absolutely better prepared to defend the Capitol. As a chorus of calls to hold those accountable for the insurrection grows louder.
9: Thank you for your service, for your sacrifice, and for your dedication. I am honored to serve alongside you.
8: The Department of Justice is prosecuting hundreds of individuals who stormed the Capitol that day. But questions remain about whether those who influenced or encouraged the rioters, like former President Donald Trump, will bear any responsibility. the Attorney General Merrick Garland pledging to hold all perpetrators at any level accountable under the law, but not giving a specific timeline.
9: We understand that there are questions about how long the investigation will take and about what exactly we are doing. Our answer is, and will continue to be, the same answer we would give with respect to any ongoing investigation. As long as it takes. And whatever it takes for justice to be done, consistent with the facts and the law. I understand that this may not be the answer some are looking for.
8: On Capitol Hill, their investigation continues on a rapid clip. The January 6th Select Committee wants to hear from Fox News host Sean Hannity, who is texting White House officials like former Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, begging him to encourage Trump to call off his pressure campaign to prevent the certification of the election results. Texting Meadows, quote, We can't lose the entire White House counsel's office. I do not see January 6th happening in the way he's being told. Chairman Benny Thompson telling CNN the committee also wants to hear from Vice President Mike Pence, and asking him to come in on his own accord.
5: I would hope uh, that he would do the right thing and come forward and voluntarily uh, talk to the committee. Uh, You know, everybody there didn't have a security detail, uh, so we'd like to know uh, what his security detail uh, told him was going on and, and, and what all went on.
8: And the committee seems to be very focused on the conduct of the former President Donald Trump in the days leading up to and on January 6th. They continue to interview witnesses who have a firsthand account of those proceedings. Among them, Stephanie Grisham, the former first chief of staff to First Lady Melania Trump. She was also the former White House press secretary. She was in and around the first family on that day. Jake, she's expected to meet with the committee tonight to tell them what she knows about the events surrounding the insurrection.
0: Jake. All right. Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, Secretary Mayorkas, you said uh, this week that DHS is not aware of any credible threats on the anniversary of the January 6th attack. But, quote, the threat of domestic violent extremists is a very great one. Um, it, to be frank, there seems to be a lot that law enforcement and in, intel folks simply don't know about radical groups, as we saw uh, last year. How concerned are you about safety at the Capitol tomorrow?
5: Uh, Jake, uh, domestic violent extremism uh, does in fact remain one of the greatest threats that we face on the homeland. And what we in the Department of Homeland Security do uh, is um, obtain information and share information and make sure that not only we across the federal enterprise, but also our state and local partners are fully equipped with the information and best um, positioned to prevent a threat from materializing. The threat is real, but it is our job to be prepared for it and to be uh, responsive if in fact it should materialize. It's our job uh, to be alert, Mm -hmm. to be prepared, to be practiced, and to be responsive.
0: U.S. Capitol Police Chief Thomas Manger testified today about a record number of threats against U.S. lawmakers, nearly 10,000 just in 2021, That's, that's 26 a day at least one an hour. What do you believe is behind that sharp increase in threats against lawmakers?
5: I think there are a number of things at play, uh, Jake. You know, ideologies of hate, false information, false narratives are primary sources of the threat landscape that we confront in the United States today. The divisiveness uh, in our country uh, is really fueling it as well. And there's a very important additional element. Words matter, and this goes to the issue of false narratives, of false information. Words matter, and the words of leaders matter a lot. And that can actually fuel the spread of false information and can drive people to violence. It is the connectivity between false information and violence that creates the threat to which we must respond and that we must prevent.
0: Do you think the people who run social media companies take seriously enough uh, the roles that their platforms have in false accusations, false information getting out there that ends up resulting in threats, if not violence?
5: So I think there's one uh, very important principle to, uh, to state at the very outset, and that is that... False information, uh, ideologies of hate uh, have to be addressed always mindful of one of our core principles, and that is the principle of free speech. Of course, yeah. The first, protected by the First Amendment. What we do in the Department of Homeland Security is ensure that everyone has the information that we have with respect to that false information, with respect to the threat that um, stems from it, and then we leave it to the independent decision of the social media companies to apply their terms of use and act responsibly with respect to what they are seeing on their platforms. Because it is through those platforms that those ideologies and those false narratives are spread so quickly and so widely across our country.
0: Just to touch on something you just said a moment ago. Um, Yesterday on the show, we were talking to former FBI and CIA official Phil Mudd, and he said he's not only concerned about physical security. He's worried about how the language of political violence is becoming mainstreamed and accepted in the U.S. these days. Take a listen.
8: What I've seen change over the last year isn't just the threat to windows. It's more and more politicians saying what happened is maybe an, uh, an acceptable part of the political landscape. I don't care how hard you secure windows or how many people you hire, if this starts to be part of the American political dialogue that is violence against a building, no intel guy, no security guy can secure that building.
0: Do you agree, do you think that this language of political violence uh, is becoming discouragingly mainstream and considered acceptable among too many people?
5: Uh, Jake, I think that the language of division creates a vulnerability because that divide is filled and it is filled uh, with uh, ideologies uh, that speak uh, against our social norms. It is filled uh, by false narratives. It is filled by our nation state adversaries that seek to exploit that divide and actually widen it. And so I do, uh, I am very concerned about it but uh, we are vigilant in response to it. It it goes back uh, Jake to something I said uh, just a a moment ago that the words of leaders matter and we need leaders to lead responsibly to communicate uh, to the American public truths. You know we speak very often about the very well established rule of law we also need the rule of fact to prevail in our country and um, We're very focused on that as well.
0: Well, Good luck tomorrow, Secretary Mayorkas. We really appreciate your time today.
5: Thank you, Jake.
0: Tomorrow, join us for an unprecedented gathering inside the U.S. Capitol with police, lawmakers, and political leaders. Anderson Cooper and I will host our coverage live from the Capitol January 6th, one year later at 8 p.m. Eastern, only on CNN. Coming up, new details about how President Biden plans to mark the January 6th anniversary, including calling out the role that he thinks his predecessor played. Plus, riot police today using stun grenades and tear gas to try to break up tens of thousands of protesters. What is fueling these demonstrations? That's ahead. In our politics leader expect a passionate plea for election reform from President Biden tomorrow before a more expanded speech next week. According to the White House, he's going to touch on the issue when he delivers a speech marking one year Since the deadly Capitol insurrection, the White House is also laying the ground for Biden, possibly supporting a Senate rule change to get an election reform bill passed. But as CNN's Kaelin Collins reports for us now, President Biden first has to get two key Democrats on board.
16: On the one year anniversary of the attack on the Capitol, President Biden plans to call out former President Trump. Is he going to address his predecessor's role in the riot? Uh, Yes. In the same halls where rioters roamed freely last year, Biden will be unambiguous about who's to blame.
13: President Biden will lay out the significance of what happened at the Capitol and the singular responsibility President Trump has for the chaos and carnage that we saw. And he will forcibly push back on the lies spread by the former president in an attempt to mislead
16: the American people and his own supporters. Asked if the president will name Trump directly, Press Secretary Jen Psaki said it will be clear who he's referencing. He sees
13: January 6 as a tragic culmination of what those four years under President Trump did to our country.
16: Biden is also expected to mention voting rights as Democrats make a renewed push to pass legislation.
5: Republicans have made it abundantly clear that bipartisanship is not an option when it comes to voting rights.
16: Senator Schumer has outlined his plan. Try to pass voting rights bills again, and if Democrats fail to garner any Republican support, like they have for months... Democrats will move to change the Senate rules so they can pass with just 51 votes.
5: If Senate Republicans continue to abuse the filibuster to prevent this body from acting, the Senate must adapt.
16: But Senator Schumer has yet to get the votes of two critical Democrats to change the rules, Senator Kirsten Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin. Uh,
6: anytime there's a, a carve-out, uh, you eat the whole turkey. There's nothing left
9: because it comes back and forth.
16: Minority leader Senator Mitch McConnell is accusing Democrats of trying to justify a rules change by invoking January 6th.
1: The fact that violent criminals broke the law does not entitle Senate Democrats to break the Senate.
16: Progress on voting rights has been slow. So sluggish, in fact, that Senator Tim Kaine described it as, quote, slow as my commute after the Virginia Democrat was stranded for nearly 27 hours amid a nightmarish winter storm. It wasn't
17: boring because you know, it was kind of a survival challenge.
16: And Jake, the White House has now confirmed CNN's reporting that President Biden and Vice President Harris will travel to Atlanta next week to talk in a bigger way about voting rights, of course, after Jen saying that he will mention it while on Capitol Hill tomorrow morning.
0: All right, Caitlin Collins, thanks so much. Let's bring in our panel. Uh, Scott Jennings, let me start with you. I want to uh, play an excerpt from uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell pushing back on Democrats who want to change Senate rules for election reform, including uh, making sure that state legislatures uh, can't interfere in the voting process. Take a listen.
1: They assume that people who get elected to the legislatures are idiots. Why would any legislator, any legislature in America want to overturn the counting of votes? They have to get elected by those people, too. The notion that some state legislature would be crazy enough to say to their own voters, we're not going to honor the results of the the election is ridiculous. Scott, with all due
0: respect to Leader McConnell, has he been listening to Donald Trump, Republican members of Congress, or Republican state legislators since November 2020? That's exactly what they've been pushing, overturning the, the will of the voters in their states.
4: Well, two two issues, Jake. Number one, I think he's also saying that if you're a state legislator and you say, I'm going to overturn the results of an election uh, on a ballot that I didn't like, but I also won on. So I'm going to fix one election and not the other, then it it would make no sense. The other issue McConnell has is broader, and that is he simply opposes any effort by the Democrats to federalize or have a federal takeover of what has historically in this country been a state-run system a decentralized system of elections, and he wants no interference from the federal government in what the states, counties, and municipalities do with their elections. He's not going to change, and I don't think anybody in the Republican conference is going to bend on it. Uh,
0: just to make, not to um, make to fine a point on this, but that's what not only legislatures, but, but congressmen, David, you, 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 you can talk about this. Members of Congress, Republican members of Congress from Pennsylvania, for example, with one exception, all voted to not count the votes, the electoral votes from Pennsylvania, even though they were elected on that same ballot. I agree with you, it makes no sense. but but David, help me out here. That's what they tried to do.
18: yeah, they absolutely tried to do it. And also, you know, one thing that is uh, has to be understood here is that these state legislators tend to run very different races. They don't have the same, necessarily the same kind of constituency that you have in a presidential election. So it's a little bit of a different electoral incentive. But here's the thing, though, Jake. If Mitch McConnell is dead set against federal interference in these state uh, presidential elections, you know what he should be willing to do? Reform the Electoral Count Act. Because that is exactly what the Trump administration tried to do. That's what the team Trump tried to do, was to get federal interference in these state elections through manipulation of the Electoral Count Act. And that is something that is low hanging fruit that should be consistent with Leader McConnell's philosophy of hands off of these state elections, because right now the Electoral Count Act is too vulnerable to manipulation at the federal level that could overturn the results of an election.
0: And David, you write a great piece in the Dispatch uh, about this. The, the Electoral Count Act was written uh, in 1887. It's confusing. Uh, it's difficult to understand. The language is weird. And they were trying to exploit um, through bizarre interpretations, the idea that Pence could overthrow bizarre, the election. Yeah. Um, uh, Anna, why not? If you're if you're Chuck Schumer, why not at least do that? You don't even have Cinema and Manchin on board uh to, to pass or to change the filibuster rules to, to pass the uh the the election reform bills. Why not say, okay, Mitch McConnell, let's do what David French says and make sure that at least this hole is plugged. <laughs>
19: Because uh, I don't think Chuck Schumer has the, um, the political will to do it. And I think he is afraid of the, of the uh, pushback. And I think he is concerned about the institutionality. Listen, d- doing this and breaking the filibuster, making carve-outs for the filibuster is something that's very difficult even for Joe Biden. It's difficult for Chuck Schumer. It's difficult for Joe Manchin. So there's an entire group of people who are Democrats for whom this is very difficult. And Jack, I just want to say, I'm so glad that we are talking voting reform and voting laws this day, the day before January 6th, because we all have to keep in mind that January 6th was about overturning legitimate election results. They were not able to do it by violence, but some Republicans have dedicated themselves for the last year to do it legislatively, whether it makes sense or not.
0: And Scott, the White House says in Biden's speech tomorrow, he's going to call out the singular responsibility Trump has for the Capitol attack, which is something that both uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, and Mitch McConnell uh, said uh, at the time. Meanwhile, Donald Trump canceled his event uh, tomorrow. Um, Is that welcome news for most Republicans?
4: Well, I mean, you know, any Republican in their heart of hearts, uh, uh, if they were being honest, would tell you they have eyes and ears in a television, or they were in the Capitol that day. They saw exactly what happened. They know who's responsible for it. They know who whipped up a mob. Uh, they know who encouraged the the feeding of the lies and fed the lies directly to the mob. I mean, it, it, there's no mystery here on what happened regarding the electoral college act. If I may count act, if I may go back to this for just one moment, McConnell did open the door to this process today and said he was open to it. He thought it looked like it was something that needed to be dealt with. I know. Uh, that he thinks the threshold that the law gives, you know, essentially one senator and one congressman can give a wave of false hope and set off, in this case, a crisis uh, under the confines of this law. And so I think my sense is, is that if something is going to happen, uh, it's going to be done in a bipartisan way. The real question here, like the infrastructure bill, if the real question here is, will Chuck Schumer allow this chunk of it, as you suggested, to go without the other things, this should not be linked to what the Democrats want to do on, on other election stuff. This is its own issue. It deserves to be looked at. And, uh, and I, think, I think there's openness to that as long as it's not linked to uh, the other stuff that, that Republicans simply just don't agree with.
0: And David, uh, Republicans, as we were just were talking about, were quick to call out Trump right after the attack. Remember, this is what Kevin McCarthy sounded like a year ago this month.
12: The president bears responsibility for Wednesday's attack on Congress by mob rioters. He should have immediately denounced the mob when he saw what was unfolding.
1: The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people. McConnell doesn't talk about this
0: much, but he hasn't changed his position. Kevin McCarthy, I don't even recognize him in that clip. He, (laughs) He completely sounds different, David. Yeah, you know,
18: here's the depressing truth, Jake. If you look at the data Even right after January 6th, there were two Republicans whose approval ratings plunged with Republican voters and one whose approval ratings remained sky high. The one whose approval remaining remained sky high was Donald Trump. The two Republicans whose approval approval ratings plunged after January 6th, Mike Pence, Mitch McConnell. In other words, the message was sent very loud and clear from the base to the party establishment that you have to stick with Donald Trump and these guys have heard that and they've responded to that. And that's
0: sad. And Navarro, final thought?
19: I just think it's so shameful and so pathetic. And I'm so glad you played that. And I hope that tomorrow, January 6th, we play it over and over again. Because there were so many Republicans that at the moment had the backbone to call a spade a spade. And today had the lack of shame to pretend that it didn't happen, to want to move on. And my question time and time again is, forget about putting country over party. How about showing some loyalty and gratitude to the law enforcement officials who took the blows and who took the attacks physically in order to protect them? Have they no shame? We cannot forget what happened on January 6th.
0: Thanks to all of you, really appreciate it. School is out for thousands of students in one major city. We're gonna talk to a parent who's angry about the sudden closure. Stay with us. Breaking news. North Korean state media just announced that Kim Jong-un's regime has successfully fired a hypersonic missile hitting its target earlier this week. CNN's Barbara Starr is live for us at the Pentagon. Barbara, U.S. officials were quick to condemn this test. What else do we know about the launch?
18: Well, if this test was successful, it would be the second time the North Koreans have tested a hypersonic system, of course, a missile that flies extremely fast, which, if successful, uh, the U.S. has no defense for right now. So that's why there's obviously some concern about it. But there's a lot of questions here about what exactly they fired. And did it really travel more than 400 miles and hit its target with precision? Does North Korea really have that capability right now? A lot of questions by U.S. experts and the U.S. government about all of this. The U.S. says they believe it was a ballistic missile and that it flew not for very long, perhaps less than a minute. And for that reason, they have very little electronic intelligence, very little in the way of emissions from the missile that may tell them exactly what it was. Jake.
0: Barbara Starr at the Pentagon Forest, Thank you so much. We have some more breaking news. Just moments ago, the CDC panel of vaccine advisors recommended the Pfizer booster shot for children ages 12 to 17. The final decision now rests with CDC Director Dr. Rochelle Walensky. This comes as several major school districts are making changes due to the recent surge in Omicron cases, including in Chicago, where the teachers union voted last night to switch to virtual learning. As CNN's Adrian Broadus reports for us now, students there are now the ones caught in the middle of the standoff between the teachers union and school district officials.
7: This has been going on for way too long. School canceled again for more than 340,000 students in Chicago. Parents like Lori Scuro left scrambling. She supports teachers but doesn't agree with the union's actions. I'm really, really mad. Students belong in school. Remote learning doesn't work. Uh, frankly, I would rather school have been canceled today than have my son sit in front of a a Chromebook again. The Chicago Teachers Union voting to refuse showing up in person for work and asking for a return to remote learning, citing concerns over COVID-19 safety. Don't keep
14: using us as sacrificial lambs, saying that it's safe to be in schools. It's not.
7: The district canceled classes on Wednesday in response. And before the union's vote, Mayor Lightfoot made it clear it's she crazy wants crazy. students in the crazy. classroom. The schools are safe. And Dr. already has said that and will continue to say it. We know it because of the hundreds of millions of dollars that CPS has invested in our schools from ventilation to HEPA filters, uh, to partitions, to masks, to hand sanitizers, to protocols. The union challenging the decision to have everyone back in schools and in person and calling the district unprepared.
5: The city has uh, failed to deliver a whole number of basic demands that we need in the schools, has failed to provide adequate staffing, adequate cleaning in the schools, has failed to um, provide adequate testing, uh, has failed to address our concerns as people go into the schools.
7: Kiana Payton is an educator at Park Manor Elementary. Her children also attend public schools. I am afraid
14: because I have a husband.
7: I have a young child, I have a 90-year-old grandmother with underlying health conditions and issues. And so I would just appreciate being able to work in an environment where at least the students are all PCR tested weekly and we have their results to go to in-person instruction. The mayor and district leaders insist schools aren't a significant cause of the virus spreading and warn teachers they will receive no pay for refusing to show up in person. We believe that teachers should come to work if they want to be paid and compensated. And Jake, teachers who had planned to instruct their students remotely today said they couldn't. When they went to log into that online portal, they were locked out. Jake?
0: Adrian brought us thanks so much. Let's talk about this with a mom, Natasha Dunn. She's a mother of a seventh grader in Chicago Public Schools. Um, Natasha, if it's okay if I call you that, as a working mother who only found out late last night that schools are going to be closed, how are you managing this?
14: Well, I mean, I'm back to square one. Um, It's really difficult for me to really be able to pay attention to my daughter's learning needs and work full time. Um, I feel like this was a catastrophic failure. Um, I do think that um, the CTU was completely reckless in forcing an entire district to go on remote learning when the uh, when CPS has mitigations in, in progress. Now, our school district is not the most perfect school district at all. But what I will say is that they do have a transparent process for us as parents and community to see what are the needs of our schools in terms of safety. And so far, the data have shown that our kids are safe in the building. Now, some schools might have problems So I'm not saying that all schools are perfect, but it does not resonate to the point where you should interrupt the learning of over 300,000 students at 500 schools across the district. We are a humongous district. What they've done is set us back um, and we don't want to stay back. We want to move forward.
0: Families everywhere and mine, too. I have a 12 year old and a 14 year old. We're exhausted by almost two years of Mm -hmm. pandemic parenting How difficult uh, has this period been for you and your daughter since it began in March 2020?
14: Well, it's been difficult because um, I also have twins who graduated in the pandemic. Um, They're part of the class of 2020. Um, And so for them, they didn't really have an opportunity to, you know, experience what a graduation ceremony would be. They didn't go on prom. Um, They were stripped of a lot of different things that most young people, you know, look forward to when they are ending their um, high school years. And in terms of my daughter, she's in her prime, you know, developmentally as an adolescent. Um, It's very vital for her to be around students, for her to be able to socialize and for her to be comfortable going into a school building. But most importantly, for her to have face to face instruction. What we know right now is that remote learning was a catastrophic failure, specifically for black students across the country. Our students were behind before the pandemic. And when I tell you this pandemic has really put us in a state of emergency, it actually has. And so while we have people who are fighting to keep the schools closed, there's nobody fighting to close the gaps that persisted before the pandemic. And the reason why I'm upset is because, you know, that's important to me. My daughter's future is important to me the future generation of our children who we need to be prepared to lead and to be able to uh, work jobs and, and go into science and math industries and move our country forward. They're not going to be prepared.
0: Have you spoken with any of your daughter's teachers?
14: You know, I haven't really spoken to them, but I do know from other parents that my my daughter's school, the teachers are very you know, passionate about their jobs and, they want to be back in the classroom as well. You know, um, they really wasn't sure about what they were voting for. What I'm learning is that essentially CTU went on an unauthorized strike. The teachers were under the impression that they had the authority to vote for remote learning when they didn't actually have that. That was never an option for them to be able to do. Um, Remote learning is something that's activated when the Illinois Department of Health and the superintendent determines and deems that that's something that we need to do.
0: Natasha Dunn, thank and you I- so thank you so much for talking to us today, and best of luck uh, to you and you. Uh, and your daughter. Hope to talk to you again soon. Coming up next, the one way President Biden is outpacing all of his modern day predecessors. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, President Joe Biden is two weeks shy of his first full year in office, and is quietly outpacing. All of his modern day predecessors on a significant achievement thanks to the Democrats rather slim majority in the Senate. As CNN's Tom Foreman reports for us now, Biden may have only 10 months left to finish what he started.
1: With hot-button issues roaring into federal courts, the White House is setting a blistering pace. President Biden nominating more federal judges in his first year than the record number put up by former President Trump in his, with more than twice as many confirmed in the Senate. Like Trump, he is trying to shape American justice for decades.
7: In many ways, Joe Biden stole from Trump's playbook. Trump went in even before he was president and said he wanted to change the face of the courts. And after four years, he did it.
1: We need it from top to bottom. To turn back the Trump tide, Biden's picks have been far more diverse and less likely to come from the ranks of prosecutors. Trump picked mainly white men. Biden's list of new judges is filled with women and people of color. And more former public defenders to the bench than any administration in American history.
3: I would absolutely respect the authority of every Supreme Court justice and all of its precedents
5: without reservation. See, I don't believe you. I think you allowed your political beliefs to cloud your judgment.
1: Republicans have not made it easy. While they cheered Trump loading the courts for their side and howled about Democratic efforts to stop it, now they are doing the same to Biden's picks. Did you intend
4: for violent criminals to be released early?
17: The Democrats have stayed united. Without that, they would have failed because every one of his Court of Appeals nominees got over 40 nay votes.
1: Still, Biden is racing the clock. Polls say elections next fall could hand Republicans a majority in the Senate where their outrage over what's happening now. Federal judges are appointed for life. That is a long time. Could quickly overrule the Democratic Party's so far remarkably successful case for change.
7: They really need to have a majority in the Senate to be able to push through these nominees. And if that were to switch, that would really stall Joe Biden's efforts here. And, of
1: course, there is the Supreme Court in all of this. Trump helped establish a conservative majority there by picking three new justices, a chance he got in part thanks to then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. If the election goes against the Democrats, Biden may not get to name even one. Jake? Tom Foreman, thanks so
0: much. The mayor of Philadelphia is calling it one of the most tragic days in the history of the city. Seven children killed in one fire. A place where smoke detectors were not working. Stay with us. In our national lead, tragic news today. Out of Philadelphia, officials there confirming at least 13 people are dead after a fire at an apartment building. Seven of the victims, seven of them were children. Firefighters say they confronted the heavy fire in the kitchen area of the second floor. Let's get right to CNN's Evan McMorris Santoro. Evan, 26 people lived in this three-story home what's the status of the investigation well jake that's just
8: one of the many questions authorities are hoping to answer now that the worst of this in terms of the fire is over Uh, behind me authorities have put a tarp up they've taken the bodies out of this row house where this fire happened but now they have questions about why the fire started how it spread so fast and why so many people were living in that building but really for this neighborhood it's a truly tragic moment i spoke to a local uh, person here who lives nearby witnessed the the fire about just what it means for this
1: neighborhood about quarter to 7 i heard a woman scream um, oh my god oh my god and i went to the window i couldn't see anything cuz it was on my side of the street and um, i got dressed and by the time i got downstairs the fire trucks were turning the corner i was a teacher All my life, and I just can't even—I can't wrap my head around the tragedy of these relatives that are going to have to pick up their lives after this. And and I I taught at the school down the street, a block away, and some of those kids went there.
8: You know, Jake, that emotion that you heard there from Bill is something I've heard all throughout the day from officials, from the mayor to the fire department, all the way down to these people who live in this neighborhood. This is a truly tragic day in Philadelphia and one that has a lot of questions. Hopefully answers will be coming in the next
0: couple of days and weeks. Jake. The horrible story. Evan McMorris, Santoro, thank you so much. Turning to our world lead now, a plea for help from the president of Kazakhstan. After a rare rash of mass protests, riot police today using stun grenades and tear gas to try to break up demonstrations over surging fuel prices in that country. A local journalist telling CNN the internet and electricity also went out. Authorities have declared a state's Of emergency, and as CNN's Nick Robertson reports for us now, the president of Kazakhstan is promising a full crackdown.
17: Earlier, protesters clashing with security forces outside Almaty's principal government building, angered by rapidly rising fuel prices smoke billowing from stun grenades as the country's largest city reels amidst the oil-rich nation's biggest protests in so decades. One unconfirmed video clip posted to social media appears to show a soldier down, being dragged away from the protest by colleagues. The soldier's current condition also unknown. <laughs> Another unconfirmed clip appears to show soldiers with protesters on the run. One person in black clearly beaten with batons by those in uniform. In the running battles, protesters often seeming to have the upper hand. The truth of the larger situation difficult to obtain as parts of Almaty in darkness, electricity supplies cut, so too the internet. Early Wednesday officials are saying more than 200 protesters have been detained 95 security officers injured and 37 of their vehicles damaged by late Wednesday the president had taken charge of national security and vowing not to be forced out describing a worsening situation and without offering evidence blaming outside forces done
6: These terrorist gangs are essentially international. They have undergone serious training abroad. Their attack on Kazakhstan can and should be considered as an act of aggression.
17: In the swiftly developing situation, the prime minister replaced, the government offered its resignation, fuel price hikes rescinded and the country put under a state of emergency. In Moscow, the nation's closest ally, concern and calls for calm. Russia's foreign ministry saying they hope for a peaceful solution and a quick return to normal. The Kremlin spokesman saying it's important there's no outside interference. A hint at Western interference saying Russia believes Kazakhstan can solve this alone. By nightfall, chaos in several of Kazakhstan's principal cities. The government calling for help from regional allies, including Russia. Unclear if the government's moves will be enough to placate the protesters whose anger appears to transcend the rising fuel prices. Well, those regional allies have said that they're going to respond for a short period. They say they're going to send uh, what they call peacekeepers to help the government. The government is promising a very tough crackdown. And already overnight tonight, we've heard reports, seen unconfirmed video so far, of bodies and
0: of a lot of shooting in the street. Uh, Again, this is so hard to confirm right now, Jake. All right, Nick Robertson in Moscow for us. Thank you so much. Coming up next, the January 6th committee looking to talk to more Trump officials, including former Vice President Mike Pence, a member of the panel. will talk to CNN ahead. Stay with us.